This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That for joining me on the Football CFP podcast, Johnny. I'm delighted to have you. Anytime. Really good to be on with you. First question I've got for you is, what was your upbringing with football like? Who were your first footballing heroes and which team do you support? Well, I follow Wolves. Uh, it's a rather convoluted way of getting to Wolves. My dad, who is Irish, came over to this country in the mid-50s, set, uh, settled in London, um, as, as a kid of about nine or ten, and um, Wolves were a great team in the 50s then, so he, he saw them in London quite a bit. He loved the gold kit. I think the first game he went to was Tottenham Wolves, and instead of picking the local team, he picked Wolves because of the kit, really, as much as anything else, and then they kept on winning. And then uh, when, when, he, um, when he was 18, he moved to Liverpool to go to university, got a job in Liverpool, settled there, met my mum, and, and that was it. So really, I, I should be a red or a blue, and uh, as a child of the 80s, sort of uh, early 90s Liverpool and Everton were the, were the two best teams in Europe for some of that time um, but I ended up following Wolves who were in the fourth division in those days but it, it, it's taken a while but it, it's finally turned in our favour uh, and it's been all right so I suppose in, to answer your question heroes wise um, Steve Ball uh, the, the Wolves centre forward of the, of the late 80s early 90s was my absolute hero he, he, you know he's a real legend for the club. He dragged us out of the old fourth division uh, into uh, what is now the championship. And he, and he really hit national attention as well, being taken by uh, Sir Bobby Robson to the World Cup in 1990 as a second division footballer. Uh, he made his debut as a, in what is League One now, the third, third tier of English football. He made his debut for England and scored, I mean, against Scotland. Oh, sorry about that. I shouldn't, shouldn't remind you about that. But... Um, can you imagine now a, a, a footballer from the third tier of English football getting picked for England and then scoring as well? It, it, it's incredible. So uh, definitely Steve Ball was my, my childhood hero. What was your memories of your first football match you attended? Were you just mesmerised by it all as soon as you, you went? Yeah, mesmerised is a great word. There are two matches that really stick in the mind. and The, the very first one I attended was Tranmere Rovers against Wolves in the FA Cup. Uh, in, in 1983 and I remember I was a tiny kid then and I just remember we lived in Liverpool and Tranmere Rovers is just over the Mersey and Birkenhead and we got the train from Liverpool and as we got the train to Rock, Rock Ferry Station which is Tranmere Station a big football special pulled in from Wolverhampton now before your time the football specials were these British Rail trains laid on just for football fans and they, they became quite notorious in the 1980s for attracting a bit of hooliganism a bit of trouble and it used to be British Rail's worst rolling stock was, was handed over to the football fans to sort of trash on that journey and I remember that train pulled in just as we got off and I just remember what seemed like thousands it wasn't thousands clearly but you know just it felt like this huge sea of Wolves fans got off singing and walked down the platform with me. And I remember just being absolutely sort of awestruck by it. And then we went to the match. I was actually 
sat in the home end as, as I did a lot with a kid in, for the Wolves games up north, sat in the wrong end because the, the away end in the 80s was probably not a good place to be if you're a Wolves fan. Uh, they had a bit of a reputation as, as not the best travellers there for Wolves support. But, um, so then I just remember it being a really muddy pitch uh, and quite uh, cloggy. Uh, but yeah, mesmerised I was. And then the other game that really sticks out, uh, it might be in the same season, I think it was a year later, a year later, I went to Anfield to see Liverpool against Chelsea. And that was a, a totally different experience from going to Prenton Park. Uh, I remember walking out uh, to the stand, in the old Kemlin Road stand it was, which I think is now called the Kenny Dardley stand. And, um, and just seeing this perfect green pitch as opposed to the mud bath I'd seen at um, Prenton Park. And the two teams in red and blue. And it was an amazing game. Liverpool, best, probably the best club side in the world back then. And they beat Chelsea 4-3. I remember Ian Rush, Kenny Dalglish. It was just a great, great Liverpool team. Uh, and I remember the Chelsea fans peg, penned away in the corner. And it just that, that, that felt like a vast occasion. Uh, and, and, and those two games uh, just stick in my mind so vividly as first football experiences. In terms of Wolves, it's a team that interests me in the sense that they had massive success in the 50s. You had Steve Bull in the 80s, early 90s. You've kind of been in and out of the Premier League a few times, obviously, the mid-2000s when Kenny Miller was playing up front for you. I think he scored a famous goal against Manchester United, if I remember yeah, rightly, um, from a childhood, actually. And now, Wolves, to me, are a team who, you probably agree with this, have got massive ambition and, and are more than holding their own. Now, people might say, of course, they're well-backed, but how many teams have we seen in recent years, Fulham maybe been the prime example, that have been well-backed but haven't achieved but Wolves have? Yeah, it's incredible, really. Um, when you look at the backing they've got, it's quite phenomenal. I mean, Fosun, the, the Chinese owners, the Chinese investment conglomerate that owns them, are pretty much one of the wealthiest businesses in, in, on the planet, really. And it's quite incredible that uh, they've taken over a, a club like Wolverhampton and, and come into a, a city like Wolverhampton, which has had some tough times lately. Um, and it has, I would, I would call it existential change, the club. The, the face of it has changed completely. There's the physical development uh, that you see. You see the, the, the players on the pitch, like João Martinho and Raul Jimenez, world-class players. And you see the training ground being improved. But psychologically, and, and, and sort of, um, there's a mindset about the place now that never existed in the past. And when you mention Kenny Miller, you, you, you're right to point him out because he, he was from part of the first team that ever got promoted to the modern-day Premier League that mm -hmm. Dave Jones took Wolves off. Uh, I, players like Kenny Miller in that era uh, are held in huge regard um, for what they did. And, and until this current team came around, it was probably the team that fans remember most fondly in the last 30 odd years. And now uh, they went, they got promoted again, of course, under Mick McCarthy, yeah. um, less of a flair team, more of a, a bunch of uh, willing young workers who were who also, you know, did the city proud. But what's happened now is just out of this world. I mean, the idea that Jean Moutinho, one of the most, you know, gifted uh, players in Europe could, could end up at Wolves. It, it's astonishing really. And uh, I, even though I've been watching this, team for now a couple of seasons you, every time I look at them on the pitch I do think you know I, I do look back and just can't, uh, think this is just incredible that we're seeing these players playing at Molyneux. You mentioned Molyneux there what's Molyneux like as a ground to watch football at I've, I've never been to Molyneux I would like to go in the future what's it like? 
it's great. It's a city centre ground, and that, for me, um, a city centre ground is everything. I love going up to Newcastle, for example. You know, getting off the train there and walking up the hill through the town centre to, to Newcastle's ground, and um, and there are others, uh, you know, around the country, right in the heart of the city. And I think when you've got city centre grounds, uh, it really feels or town centre grounds. It feels it feels a huge part of the community, and it's um, feels a focal point. And Molyneux, Molyneux certainly feels like a focal point. It's a nice ground. It, you know, it's got, it's a, it's a bit uh, out of kilter in, in the sense of the stands built at different times. The most recent one was built, I think, five, six years ago. And the oldest one was built in 1979, 1980. So uh, there is a difference. Um, but it looks smart. It looks good. It's, it's not on top of you. If it was built again today, it would probably be a bit more on top of the pitch and it, you know it, it would uh, be contained in a sort of bowl to try and create a better atmosphere it's four distinct separate stands but um night games are famous uh, they all the, the floodlit friendlies in the 1950s was what made wolves famous really it was a precursor to the european cup uh, and they took part in these floodlit friendlies against top european sides before european competition existed uh, and ever since then molyneux has always had this sort of flavor of nighttime football and the fans are always seen more up for nighttime football at molyneux than the saturday afternoon three o'clock stuff and i think some of uh, some of the club's best days in, in recent years uh have been nighttime games as well you've talked about your, your your love of wolves there where do you see wolves going in the next sort of 10 years i mean the ambition really the sky looks as if the sky's the limit yeah, they've certainly got uh, everything in place to, to keep on pushing and pushing, and they're, they're building very impressively. Uh, a lot depends on the manager, Nuno Espirito Santo, whether or not he can stay at the club. Um, if he left with his backroom staff, I think there'd be a huge void that would need filling, and Wolves would definitely take a step back. But he appears to be buying into what's called the project locally. He seems to buy into Fosen and their ambition. Uh, in that sense... Um, you know, you wouldn't back against them keeping, keeping on improving. That they, they, they've, you know, they were, I think they're sixth in the league at the moment before it was, um, before it was sort of truncated this season. And last season they finished seventh. They were flying in the Europa League. It was, you know, I know, I know that there are wider issues, obviously, with what's going on right now. But the idea of their first European competition in 40 years and in with a real shout in the Europa League and having it sort of. Uh, the, the rug pulled from under them like this is is hard, and I know a lot of Wolves fans are really gutted by that. I think I think if they keep on building, they can they can certainly be regulars in European football. I don't know. It's funny. I don't know what what you call a team that could challenge for the league anymore. I mean, you look at Manchester United. For me, you know, traditionally a, a challenger every year, but they're miles away from Man City and Liverpool. So in that sense, you know, if Man City and, and Chelsea, Tottenham are miles away from Liverpool and Man United, sorry, Liverpool and Manchester City, then, you know, Wolves are a good bit behind those teams. So uh, how far they can go, I don't know. It, it just depends. Uh, the, the progress has been astonishing, but the rate of progress will obviously slow down the higher up they get. Yeah, in terms of yourself, Johnny, let's talk about your broadcasting career. Um, you're most well-known, I would say, for working on Sky Sports. That's where I remember you from through the years. What's, what was your route into broadcasting and journalism like? Well, it was. Um, I sort of had a, a plan when I went to the university. I did a media degree at university in Leeds uh, and always wanted to work, not in broadcasting necessarily, but maybe uh, newspaper journalism. Uh, I didn't really have an idea of going into broadcasting. It was, it was sort of newspapers. I did a little bit of writing. Uh, at school and, and, and things like that 
I did a bit of hospital radio volunteering. So I tried to keep my hand in. And then I ended up working for a press agency in Leeds for a while where we had fingers in lots of different pies. Um, we did local radio. We did a bit of uh, local, uh, what, how would you call it? I suppose content copy providing for, um, for various uh, media agencies and outlets. And through that and through connections in that, I did a bit more radio work. I ended up on talk sport for a little bit, doing the odd bit of freelance stuff. Uh, covered their embassy snooker championships one year, which was great fun. And then a, an, an old colleague, an old friend called Alan Bentley, uh, was working for Sky Sports um, at the start of their journey with football league coverage. It was the nationwide league, I think, back then. I don't know, maybe, maybe even before then. Uh, and one day a, a job came up as an editorial assistant, quite low down in the company, uh, a, a, a good route in to, um, to get in. And so I, I sort of took the jump. Um, and then from being sort of an editorial assistant, helping out with little uh, basic packages here and there, almost running work in the television industry, um, just sort of moved back into reporting. I've been a reporter at the press agency, so I always wanted to carry on reporting. And then got the Soccer Saturday gig uh, after a few years. And then since then, I've continued, kept, kept working on Soccer Saturday and been able from there to do a bit of documentary production. And, and then also a bit of freelance newspaper work here and then got back into my first love, which was probably writing originally. And you mentioned Soccer Saturday there, one of the most iconic football programmes in the history of the UK, let's be honest with you, and working alongside Jeff Sterling. For me, Jeff is one of the most infectious people when it comes to football. He makes every single Saturday seem like it's the best Saturday yet. What's it like working with him? It's brilliant, you know. Um, he is great, and I remember the first time I got to work with him. Uh, you know, you, you are starstruck, uh, and I was definitely starstruck by Jeff. Um, I suppose the biggest compliment I can pay him is that um, the man you watch on television, you sort of you love from behind, you love from your sofa, and you think, "Oh, what a great bloke he is!" And then you get to meet him, and he, he turns out he is a great bloke. Um, he's you know football nut. Uh, he's on the board at Hartlepool now, I think, or he, you know he has some role with the club. Uh, he's devoted a lot of his life to supporting Hartlepool. Uh, and he's just, he loves his football and he's a, he's a great bloke. Uh, uh, and, uh, and more than that, he's brilliant at, at what he does. You know, one of, one of the best presenters out there. I mean, I don't know what it comes across to, to the viewers, but there is an element of organised chaos about Soccer Saturday. He's got the four pundits sat alongside him, um, interjecting and screaming, shouting while it's going on. But that's only the half of it. He's also got a director in his ear, he's got a producer in his ear, he's got statsman in his ear. He's really coping with so much. And it's a six hour program, you know, it's an incredibly long program. There aren't many programs on air for six hours live these days. And he handles it brilliantly. Uh, you know, he's definitely a broadcasting giant. In terms of your role as a reporter in Soccer Saturday, whether that be attending matches or producing um, production pieces such as interviews with, with staff members, etc from clubs. What's it like, first of all, covering a game for Soccer Saturday Live when they come to you? Are you always ready for it or have you had a Chris Kamara moment yourself? Oh God, yeah, there's plenty of those. Um, yeah, you're not always ready for it and sometimes you, uh, and sometimes might, it might be a technical hitch where, where the feed drops out. You know, you've got the programme in your ear, but sometimes the programme might drop out from time to time, as happens. Uh, sometimes you might get carried away watching the match and then, you know, you miss your cue. Um, and sometimes they want to come to you instantly. That a lot of the time, the game you're at, they've got the the director's got the 
has got the screens of the game going on live um, in, the, in, in, the, in the studio. So they know something's happened the second it's happened. So there's no sort of hiding uh, and trying to buy a bit of time when you're wearing the headset on the gantry. They could come to you instantly. So, yeah, there's a lot of time where you do, um, you do have to sort of, uh, you know, bumble your way through. But it's all part of the experience. It's great fun. Uh, there's a real buzz about being on uh, between three and five on a Saturday and hearing the programme in your, your earpiece as well and, you know, hearing all the, the drama going on elsewhere described by everyone else. See, in terms of doing your role, doing your job as a reporter, see, being a big, massive football fan, a massive Bulls fan, how much of a, a thrill is it getting to go to lots of different grounds and, and just experience football firsthand? Oh, it's great. I mean, you know, if I wasn't working in this industry, I'd just be watching Wolves every week and going to football. That's what I used to do. I used to have a season ticket. I used to devote a lot of my income to, just to go and watch Wolves. So I'd probably just be... I mean, I've got, you know... Um, family now so it would be harder but I'd give up even taking the kids that sort of thing it's one of those where um you know, you know I'd always want to be at football on a Saturday afternoon so to, to do it with work's brilliant to, and, and to cover uh, the team I support's brilliant as well I mean they're not necessarily uh, I wouldn't say I always want to cover a Wolves game uh, there are lots of other big games that you you know you, you quite want to go to like for this season for example I've loved going up to Liverpool I'm watching Liverpool are just a stunning team uh, whenever I get roted onto a Liverpool game, it's brilliant. Um, so there are lots of, I wouldn't just blindly say, I'll lob me on a Wolves game, stick me on a Wolves game, just to support them. You know, you do, you, you have a love of the support, of the sport rather, in general. So you want to see lots of different teams, definitely to give you a, a broader overview of how, how the teams are. In terms of interviewing, whether it's a player, a manager, presenting the manager of the week or team of the week award, what's it like being involved in that sort of process when, it, when you're preparing for an interview and delivering it? Yeah, it, the, 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 there's so much variety on Soccer Saturday because you, you've got the stuff in the week where you might be making uh, a four or five minute package to go on air in the build-up uh, where you're really telling a story and what you've got to do in that sense editorially is try and see see a story and find a way of telling the viewer that story in the minutes you're allocated. Now, some pieces, you know, might only be two minutes long, some might be five or six minutes long, and five or six minutes in television terms is a huge amount of time. So you can tell an in-depth story in that amount of time. Two minutes, it's harder. And the, and the interviews are different. Sometimes when you go lower down the leagues, um, you, you can get more colour and you can get more access and, and players and managers are happy for you to be around them a bit more and you can have a bit more fun. Higher up when you're interviewing I don't know, managers like Klopp or Mourinho, whose time is of the essence and, and there's huge media pressures on them. You're literally sort of not quite frog marched, but you're put in a room and given an allock allocated maybe 10, 15 minutes and, and the stopwatch is literally on you. There is, a, there is a media man putting the stopwatch on you. He'll give you a tap on the back the minute your time's up. So in that sense, you've got to, you know, you've got to get what you need in that space of time. So there are those interviews that you do in the week uh, that are pre-recorded, and then the live interviews you do in the tunnel uh, on the Saturdays are, are a totally different vibe. You know, um, there's a lot of testosterone flying around a, a tunnel, a uh, football tunnel, especially after a match. Uh, and whoever's won, well, there's obviously a, a, a loser on the other end. So you're having to deal with a, a person who's high on emotions and, and happy, and another person who's really emotionally low uh, and, and could have an axe to grind as well. So in that sense, um, you have to tread carefully, yet still try and tease some sort of story out of the people you're speaking to. 
I've got to talk to you about, for me, one of the best games I've seen in, in many years and a game that you were involved in. And it's a game that we all, I'm sure you're asked this question every single day, you'll be sick of getting it. Watford versus <laughs> Leicester, describe that game, describe what it was like to actually be there and, and, and also be on Soccer Saturday entertaining millions of us. Yeah, it was incredible, really. Um, it was a Sunday match, and we had a, we had, we had a Soccer Saturday on a Sunday, a Soccer Special, whatever it's called. I remember, you know, just as a little side note to that, I played Sunday League, and um, I remember being devastated that, that we, I was having to work on a Sunday because I was missing a good Sunday League match from a team. So I, I went along to this game with a heavy heart, but then I got there and I thought, oh, this, you know, it's the playoffs. I love the playoffs. The playoffs are brilliant. Um, so I thought, this is all right, you know, go and do the game and, and have fun. And it was a great, great game. And, you know, I think Leicester had a 1-0 lead in the first leg. And it was a really good quality game of football. And there were a couple of really, really good goals scored in, in normal play. And then it gets to the six minutes of injury time, which is, and the game was heading for extra time. I think Watford were 2-2 on aggregate. And it had been a super game and played in a great spirit, great atmosphere. And then Leicester won this penalty. Anthony Knockhart won this penalty. And he'd clearly taken a dive. And there was this, it was a penalty he was awarded. And there was a huge sense of injustice about it. So I remember being really sort of excited. They're big moments. And obviously, Leicester scored the penalty. They're into the playoff final. Uh, and, and that's it. So they kept Jeff Stelling crossed to me. And I'm obviously, you're quite, um, you're starting off on quite a high. So I was starting off on quite an excitable tone as it was, <laughs> trying to convey the injustice of the penalty. And then they stay with me live for the penalty. Now, I'm obviously looking at a camera down uh, in my eye line and just below my eye line is a, a small screen no bigger than a laptop showing the action and the match is taking place behind me so I can't turn around and look at the match for people to see the back of my head so what I've got to do is look at the camera like this and then just look down every now and then and do that so I remember seeing the penalty and it was saved I thought brilliant it's been saved and so you know not brilliant uh, I followed Watford just brilliant uh, justice has been served and then the rebound just fell to the to knock out again and all he's got to do is lift it over the keeper who was carrying an injury if I remember uh, rightly and, and, and had very uh, reduced mobility and he tried to dink it over him and I remember just thinking well this is just going to go in and somehow the keeper clawed it away so obviously I'm getting even more excited now saying the penalty is saved and he saved it again and it was hacked up field and it very quick it was very quickly it became apparent that as they hacked it up field Leicester for some obscure reason bear in mind it was a penalty and a set piece situation they were just caught short I don't know why they were caught short from a penalty when really they should have had enough players back and it became so obvious that they were caught short and I could hear the crowd all around me but again I'm just looking at the screen and then it, it broke out and Troy Deeney scored the goal and I was just so excited and uh, obviously my voice broke, everything else went. I think one of my mates got, uh, at work called it a scorgasm, which was probably a, a, you know, a reasonable description of it. And then there's flares going off in the stands behind me, you know, uh, everything, pitch invasions. And it was, it was just phenomenal. Like, it was quite an emotional moment because it was just, you sense that something huge had happened in terms of, you know, the people who were there at that, that moment in time would never forget that. Um, but I also remember a little bit of me, and it still to this day, it grates with me, a little bit, was so annoyed that I had to watch the whole thing unfold on this tiny screen below me when I was desperate just to turn around. I just wanted to turn around and look at it. You know, th this was gonna, you know, one of the greatest goals you'll ever see live unfolding behind me. And I had to watch it on a, on a tiny monitor. So uh, it was amazing, but I've never actually seen the goal properly because I only ever saw it on the monitor. Um, and then it was just, it was incredible what happened afterwards. And you still speak to people, you know, 
I did a, I was at a Chelsea function um, at Christmas and uh, Gianfranco Zola was there and he was the manager at the Watford at the time and it, you know, he smiles at you every time he sees you and it's things like that. It just, the, the people who are involved in it, it'll never ever, they'll never, never ever lose that and that's what football's about, isn't it? It's about moments as much as it is about trophies and those Watford fans had that moment and it, what a great moment it was. Anytime you see a Watford fan, is that the first thing they say to you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You'll get, uh, yeah, you get, you just get collared um, wherever it is. Um, yeah, yeah, just by what for fans saying that it's, you know, it, it is. It's the first thing they say. Yeah, there's no other way of putting it. I, whenever I do a what for match and bump into them on the train or however I'm getting there, they always, you know, they always say that. Um, but it's great in a way. I've, you know, Watford will forever have a place in my heart because it was, uh, it was great. Something I want to ask you about before I finish with a round of quick-fire questions is you've obviously yeah. been very successful in broadcasting and journalism as well. What advice would you give to young broadcasters or journalists looking to make their way in, in football or sports media? Uh, I think it's, it's a hard profession to get into. I think you've got to have a love of the sport and a love of the game. I did a, I did a talk at a school in Wolverhampton a couple of weeks ago with... Um, with a, with a bunch of six formers or lower six formers. And there was a, a, a kid there who was um, uh, producing blogs and podcasts and uh, YouTube channels rather, uh, with whoever he could get his hands on. Uh, and he, he, was, he was a lovely kid and he was just, just trying to get out there. And he wasn't necessarily interviewing big names or anything. He was just interviewing people that, you know, he'd come across in every walk of life. And, you know, sometimes he'd, he'd meet former players and former that. And, you know, you, you just sensed he had this love of the, of the game and everything. And it, I think if you've got that love of the sport, you're halfway there in that sense because that gives you the drive and the ambition, I, I guess. And then after that, you, I suppose you've got to be prepared to take a knock. There's a lot of doors that get just slammed in your face in this industry because it's quite competitive and people are going to get in. So used to people saying no, I guess, uh, um, and people sort of turning you down and then just go, getting back up and trying to get in again and again. So I'd say... Maybe, maybe you need to be a little bit thick-skinned and not take things personally when it doesn't go your way. Uh, just persevere. Um, but you've got, to, you've got to love it. You've definitely got to love it. In terms of quick-fire questions, who would you say are the best players you've seen live during your time covering football? Um, well, that's a good one. Uh, I love Paul Scholes. Uh, I, think, um, I think every time I saw Paul Scholes, he was special. I used to... Um, before the work took over and family took over, I used to go abroad watching the major tournaments uh, with England and Ireland. And uh, so I've seen some great players overseas. Louis Figo, I remember at Euro 2000, was an absolute joy. Uh, Davos Suka at Euro 96, uh, the Croatian striker, scored. I was, at, I, was at, um, I was at Hillsborough when he scored this amazing sort of scoop goal over Peter Schmeichel against Denmark. I remember him being incredible. And there was a, they had a fellow in midfield called Boban uh, for Croatia at the time. Uh, and the, most, the, the one who most recently stands out in my mind and that, um, that I saw last year um, in Madrid was uh, Modric, Luka Modric. Uh, you know, I, I think he's just so, so gifted. I love Luka Modric. And you mentioned the fact earlier on that you played Sunday League football even when you were broadcasting. What position did you play in? Did you ever have a chance of making it in the game? No, oh yeah, I played forward as a striker. I used to be, I used to be, I'm quite, I used to be quite skinny and I'm still, I'm quite slim. But I used to be like 
not much on me. So I, I played this sort of uh, runner off the last man and they used to just hoik balls over the top and he used to run onto them. Um, I loved it. I mean, I was at Union Leeds and I played for a club in Leeds and the closest I probably ever got was representing the league uh, in Yorkshire against other Yorkshire League teams. I think we played the Leeds League against the Bradford League once. But I was, I was very much the worst player on the pitch in those representative games. I was playing at the absolute peak. Uh, so there was no chance of me ever making a career in it. But uh, I loved playing to the best level I could. And then when I moved down to London, um, I found a Sunday league team, a uh, great bunch of lads who I've been playing for for years and years. Uh, and they're brilliant. I don't get to play much these days because I've got two boys now. So working on a Saturday and then disappearing on a Sunday to play football would be a bit unfair on the wife. So um, I don't do that. But... Uh, I, I love playing. I, I, I'd always take playing over watching. Uh, you know, I, I love playing it more than anything else, uh, whatever level it's at, um, definitely. You mentioned the fact that um, you love playing the game and obviously having worked at Sky, you've worked with so many ex-professionals. Have you ever had the chance to have a five-a-side or anything at Sky with any of the ex-pros? Yeah, I've had a kick around with them. Um, definitely. Uh, in fact, in this last, uh, last November, there was a a tournament at St George's Park, uh, a charity tournament for cure leukemia, and we um, people like Paul Merson, Matt Letizia, Kevin Phillips uh, all got involved, uh, and they were great. And you can tell you can tell an ex-player, you know, so quickly. Merson in particular, Merson and Letizia, you know, the, the touch and their vision, uh, just incredible. They, they they stand out. They stand out a mile footballers, ex-players. The team we played, uh, I remember playing in one game uh, in this five-a-side tournament last November and Carl Henry, the old uh, Wolves centre midfielder and uh, a full-back called Dominic Foley were playing in them and, you know, they're not sort of household, household names, uh, you know, they're not the big stars of the game and they were just watching the touch they've, and they'd retired, of course, and looking at their touch, their energy, the sort of the way you couldn't get near them, the way they held you off, the way they spotted stuff. Yeah, professional footballers just stand out amongst mere mortals. They just stand out. But they, you know, you can see why they've made it. You mentioned um, in your role, you've obviously interviewed managers before and after games. Who would you say has been the most difficult to interview after the game? Maybe because of the nature of the result, for for instance. Well, it's going back a bit because he's not a manager anymore. But by a mile, Gordon Strachan was so so. <laughs> tricky he was just I don't know what it was but he, I don't know whether he just thought you were constantly trying to trip him up uh, and I remember having a few sort of I, I, I certainly wasn't alone he, he, he took on just about everyone he yeah. spoke to in a tunnel after a match sometimes I, I don't know I mean you'd have to you'd have to ask Gordon Strachan why he um, why he was like he was and maybe he didn't think there was anything wrong with what he was doing but he, he always seemed confrontational uh, and he always seemed um he always seemed to be looking for, 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 for maybe a hurdle in a question that wasn't there. Um, so I found him particularly hard. Jose Mourinho is a challenge, but um, over time, I think he's, he's become, you know, he's become um, easier. But they all have their moments. Sir Alex Ferguson uh, was tricky as well at times. Uh, and, and sometimes we made it hard. I've made it hard for myself by asking a daft question or not perhaps judging the mood right. I remember once Sir Alex Ferguson had a, a bit of a pop at me in a post-match interview and, and probably rightly so when I just got struck the tone wrong and didn't see the bigger story or the bigger picture. Um, and, and you always have to, 
you know, even even with the ones who have caused you trouble or have been difficult, you always have to accept that those environments are so, so challenging for managers. Hmm. Uh, you know, their lives really do depend on results and they're expected to front up to cameras in an environment that's not natural to them straight after the game. They're, they're just definitely testing moments for them. So I, I would always forgive a manager any form of um, blowout and never, and never say, never judge his character on the way he was in those interviews at those times because they're really testing. What would you say the, is your favourite football ground to watch football at during your time in football? That's a really good question. Um, I, I, I suppose if I was going on atmospheres and atmospheres that stuck out in my mind from matches I've been to, uh, Celtic Park's atmosphere, uh, I haven't been to Ibrox, so I can't say it from both sides of Glasgow, but where Celtic Park stands out as, as an atmosphere that I haven't forgotten. Um, Leeds United, uh, when I was at university there in the 90s, was a phenomenal ground to watch football. Um, and then abroad, I'd say, go to any German ground. Uh, the atmosphere at German grounds is rocking. Kaiserslautern was the last game I went to in Germany a few years ago with my Sunday league team we did a Sunday league tour to Germany and we went to Kaiserslautern and we turned up the day they got promoted to the Bundesliga and that you know that was rocking um, so I wouldn't say it's necessarily the best stadium stick out although having said that Tottenham Hotspur's new ground is is absolutely phenomenal best stadium in Britain by a mile so uh, I'd say that stands out I would also say there are grounds that are special to me on a sort of personal notes and a few years ago I, I maybe in the mid 2000s at Soccer Saturday we followed the Gretna story do you remember Gretna's rise through the league yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, when they had this sort of uh, backer called Brooks Miles and, and a, a, a goal scorer called Dr Kenny Duker and Soccer Saturday latched, latched onto that story and we, we used to go up to Gretna and, and make features with Kenny and the, and the other players and then a few about 10 years after that uh, Going back about four or five years now, I made a documentary about Gretna, about their fall and rise, because obviously they had this terrible fall as well, and they went bust and reformed. So Raydale Park in Gretna, uh, they're in the Lowland League now, aren't they? Gretna 2008, they're called. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Raydale Park is probably the ground I'm most fond of, just because of the, um, the work I've done there and, and, and the happy times I've had covering Gretna's story. What I want to know is, I'm putting you on the spot here, You've worked with many ex-pros, pundits. I'm going to ask you to name a five-a-side team from your colleagues at Sky. Who gets in the team? Well, definitely Matt Letizia and Paul Merson. Um, do I have to pick a goalie? or No, you right? don't have to. You know, I will pick a goalie. Matt Murray, uh, the old Wolves keeper. Brilliant, brilliant keeper who made it as an England under-21 international before injury curtailed his career. He had terrible back injuries. And he, he would have gone, if he hadn't had injuries, he'd, he'd gone to the very, very top. So Matt Murray is my goalie. I'd have Matt Letizia and Paul Merson in there every day of the week for a bit of flair. And then what? So yeah, I need two more. Uh, two more, two more ex-professionals. That would, I suppose Graeme Souness, you'd have to have him in every day of the week uh, as, as an enforcer. And then maybe someone... Uh, def do I go for someone defensively? You don't have defenders in five aside, do you? No. Someone defensively <laughs> minded. Uh, oh, you are putting me on the spot now because there's so many ex-players and there's so <laughs> many um, there's so many people who've come through the door. So I've got Matt Murray in goal, Graham Souness, Matt Letissier, Paul Merson, 
Uh, oh, blimey. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, whoever I select, I'm going to get it wrong, aren't I? Whoever I select, I'm going to get it wrong. Um, let's, go, let's go old school and go Phil Thompson as a centre-half. Uh, it, it, it wouldn't move from that D in the five aside and just mop things up in front of Matt. There you go. Let's go for those five. Who would manage the team? Would it be you or Jeff? <laughs> Jeff's, too, Jeff's too passionate and too fiery. He wouldn't make a good manager, I don't think. Definitely me. <laughs> Last question I've got for you, staying on the theme of managers. If you could play for any manager in world football today, if you were a player, who would it be and why? It would be a toss-up between Jurgen Klopp and Maurizio Pochettino, and I would go for Jurgen Klopp. Uh, because I think he improves players in a way that, um, that, that, that just stands out. I think, the, you know, he certainly spent a lot of money, Liverpool, and then Liverpool have spent huge amounts of money to, to win the league as they're doing this season. Um, but even though he's done that, He's, he improves the players under his watch, and I think that's really, really important. Um, and I think he makes the biggest improvements of players. So, from my ropey Sunday league level, the idea of working under Jurgen Klopp would just be manna from heaven. What, what are you going to have done with me? <laughs> Brilliant, Johnny. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thanks. Really, really enjoyed chatting to you, Callum, as well. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in